Welcome back to Startup to the Rest of Us. I'm Rob Walling. Today, I talk with longtime friend and friend of the show, Dave Rodenbaugh. We talk about both of our experiences, balancing a side project with our day jobs. We talk about that feeling of finally being independent. Dave has been independent from consulting for about a year we talk through what was surprising for him and not. And I share the same thing. This is very much more a collaborative conversation than an interview. And since Dave and I have known each other for more than a decade now, he actually attended MicroConf 2011, the very first one. He's one of the handful of folks that are still around in this community who have been going to MicroConfs for, well, more than 11 years now. And since he and I know each other so well, the conversation flows. I feel like it's it's candid and we give some authentic thoughts on what it takes, or at least in our experience, what it took working nights and weekends, balancing that side project with a day job, and eventually struggling with the decision in our own different ways of when to quit that consulting work or when to quit that day job when you you know may have a significant other and or a mortgage and kids. So with that, let's dive right into my conversation with Dave Rodenbaugh. Dave, thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Always uh, an honor and a pleasure to be on the pod here and chat with you, my friend. It has been a while, and we were actually looking through the archives trying to figure out how long that while has been, and it's just an indeterminate amount of years, six, seven, eight. But folks might know you as a co-host of the Rogue Startups podcast with Craig Hewitt. Founder Castos has been on the pod many times, and you run Recapture.io, which is e-commerce email marketing software. Started as card abandonment, but you have expanded into email marketing. What That's was true. Your, what was the thought process behind making that move? Well, it was very much a land and expand strategy, both horizontally and vertically. When I saw Recapture for sale back in twenty sixteen. It was Magento only and abandoned carts and like one other feature at that point. I think it was review reminders. Mm, yeah. And it had pop-ups too. So, it was, okay, three things, three things. But as soon as I saw that, I, you know, I looked at the competitive landscape. I looked at the possibilities for places it could go. And it was pretty obvious, like you can expand in both directions based on customer interest, customer demand. So, as we started acquiring more customers, as we started going to different platforms, it just became, you know, the drumbeat got louder and louder. Hey, do you do this? Hey, can you do this too? Hey, how about this other thing that I expect on other email marketing platforms and e-commerce? And I'm like, okay, great. Yes, I can do that. And I'll charge you more for it. So <laughs> it works well to grow the business. It works well to make the customers happy. Right. And that's kind of a like moving from micro SaaS, which I typically define as like a single, almost a single feature with a single traffic channel, usually. Expanding from there is, will you build the rest of the features? <laughs> because just doing card abandonment, you are a feature that Clavio has or that Drip has or that MailChimp, you know, any number of other tools have in addition to all this other stuff. So you have dove headfirst into competitive waters for sure. Yes, uh, shark infested, if you will. <laughs> Indeed, but it's going well. Like, can you update folks on whatever metric you'd like to throw out? Team size, progress, number of customers, revenue, just give some idea of, you know, where you're at with it. Sure, sure. So uh, since I bought Recapture six years ago, we've more than 10x the business at this point. And the team has, it was originally just me and now it's tripled. So there's three of us that are working on it in a dedicated, more or less full-time way. And we all have kind of an employee relationship at this point. So I would say we're a real company, I guess. You're a team. Yeah, not just 
group of contractors. Right, right. And, you know, in terms of like customers, we're like on our way to 7,000 installed customers across all different platforms out there. A significant number of those are paid. And yeah, I mean, just uh, it's it's grown in all the right directions. You know, it's come with a lot of growing pains too, like trying to figure out you're in this competitive landscape. And what does that mean? Like, how do you, how do you carve out something that says, if you are in this part of the Venn diagram, you are perfect for our tool. And it took me a long time to really define that, articulate it, and then really start to promote it. But it's it's gone well. So, you know, I'm I'm quite happy with having been on Recapture. I went full-time a, a little over a year ago at this point. And that was one of the milestones that I had been dying to hit for 11 years. So, yeah, to finally get there is is huge. Yeah, and I feel like I busted your chops at least once every year or two, usually at MicroConf. And I would be like, Dave, you have all these products because you had other products in addition to Recapture. You kind of had the portfolio approach, right? The bootstrapper portfolio. And I, I know what your total revenue was. And I was like, dude, you can quit the consult. Your day job was consulting. And I was like, you can quit consulting. You need to quit consulting. And this is me in 2015, probably 2016. And you just kept doing it. And you're like, it's just yes. so lucrative though. <laughs> I have this day job. And I'm like, yeah, but you're, you're grinding. You're like, don't do all this. Just go, you know, go full in. So you did finally basically go independent, right? And, and work for yourself. You fo- your focus on recaptures about a year ago. And so that's our first topic. I think the first question I want to ask you, and just so folks know, like this is more of a conversation than an interview. I'll ask you a few questions, but I also will weigh in with my own experience on some of these questions. But you especially waited a long time, a longer time than most bootstrappers to go all in on your products. What was that decision like? And what finally made it click where you were like, I'm doing this after all that time? Oh gosh, that's that's a decade worth. Let's see if I can condense that down into something that is less than war and peace. Yeah, so y- you talked about those WordPress products. The problem I had with those WordPress products was, you know, the whole portfolio approach ended up with me kind of scattered in three different areas, two of which were kind of related and one of which was not. So the two WordPress plugins that I had were a directory plugin and a classified plugin. And I had built those a long time ago and they were lucrative, but they had plateaued. And so that's problem number one is that I I got them to a point where I was having trouble pushing them forward more than where they were at. So they had definitely kind of hit a place where I was like, I'm stuck. And then I let them kind of just sit there stuck for a while because I was also freelancing at the time. And none of those were actually a SaaS. So the recurring component of those was not nearly as strong as it needed to be. I think my renewal rates were somewhere between 26 and 33%, depending on the year and depending on what experiments I was running and things I had tried and so on and so forth, which is not great. Like, you know, if you're churning out 66% of your customers in a year's time, that's a pretty hefty churn rate and definitely makes for, it's difficult to make it a sustainable business. So in the back of my mind, I was like, I gotta, I gotta do something with these because I built them up and I should get some kind of reward for that work, but that was clearly not the end game. And so that's why I was looking at recapture. Well, I was trying to find a SaaS, and eventually I found recapture and that one was like, Oh, you wanted that recurring revenue to feel safe. Yeah, it was the safety thing. That's why it took so long is that I never felt like I had the safety to say it's okay to quit and that everything will be okay. 
it never felt like that until I got to recapture. And then I had to get recaptured to a certain level. And that certain level was about 80% of my freelancer income, which, you know, you and I had conversations about that. And I know you had talked about a similar kind of level when you were doing hit tail. And even before when you had bought all those little microsites and, and AdSense stuff, et cetera, et cetera. And they never quite made it all to their, uh, that level. It wasn't all, it was only when you got to hit tail and then later drip that you were like, all right, all in now. I'm totally, I'm totally in it to win it. And that's kind of where it ended up with recapture. Yeah. So I went full-time on products before I had a ton of recurring revenue, but the revenue, a lot of it was, it was one-time sales. And I had a couple ebook sites, as you said, some AdSense stuff and there was software. There was one SaaS, but it was like, it was wedding websites. It was almost it's basically B2C in essence. I mean, it's as much as, you know, because it's consumers buying it. And I had my book and I had other stuff, but none of it was as recurring as SaaS, right? Or as predictable. And even if it was recurring revenue, like the Micropreneur Academy, which is kind of the online training course, the churn of that was also quite high, right? Because it's going after kind of the freelancer indie hackers who are trying to like move into, you know, entrepreneurship. But I was so desperate. I so despised working for other people that I was willing to take a bit of a risk. And so it, for me, it was 2008, December 2008, maybe January 2009. I always forget. Right around that time was when I took the plunge. And similar to you, I was making boatloads of money consulting. This is 2008 money, and it was 20 to 25 grand a month. And I remember quitting my day job or quitting that, basically winding down a project once my products had hit about eight or 9,000 a month. And it was a lot less, but we didn't need any more than that to live on, right? It was just Sherry and I, one child. And we, at the time we were in, I think we were, were we in New Haven, Connecticut or Boston? Yeah, it was. And so it was just, we had an apartment or a townhouse, but not like our, you know, our, your lifestyle perhaps, I shouldn't say your, one's lifestyle tends to expand as they get older, have more kids, you know, do more things. And so certainly couldn't live on that now, given our lifestyle. But for me, there was such a motivation to get that freedom that I was willing, I think, to take a bit more risk, you know, than other entrepreneurs do. And I also think, I remember, Dave, you talked on Rogue Startups at one point, that when you were younger, was it your dad who like started a business and it failed? Or like at some point you were really low on money or something and, and entrepreneurship had done that. And so I think there was a scarring almost. Yeah. So the, the exact event was that my father got laid off when he was like pretty close to my age now. Like I think he was 57 and I'm 52. So when that happened, like the timing was really terrible. It was like my junior year in high school. We're preparing for college. There were house expenses and some other things that were going on. And previously, there had been some investments that went way south, like a CPA basically absconded with money from a bunch of different people, not just my father. So like the timing was, uh, yeah, it was a scarring. It was, it was a literal scar, some financial trauma. So when I saw that happen, I'm like, and then, you know, he couldn't get another job after that. That was the hard part. That was the hardest thing to see is that, you know, he sank into depression and put all this effort in, into it and nothing just was getting nothing back. It was straight up ageism, right? And I saw that and it was always sticking in the back of my mind as I was working for the first 10 years. I'm like, what happens when I'm 50? What happens when I'm in my 40s? You know, and then of course, tech is famous for ageism. So the later I got in, you know, I was in my late 30s and I'm like, I need, a, I need an exit plan here and it needs to be something that I control, not somebody else. So that was what the main motivator was to really find something, make it mine, make it big enough and 
make it something that I felt I could be proud of and sustain and carry on when it was ready. Right. And that's where entrepreneurship at the point where you're at, I would say is less risky than a day job because you are more in control. You are more in control of not directly in everything, but like how much money you make, how hard you work, whether you are fired for some random reason, whether you're laid off because some CEO made a bad decision about what XYZ and pissed away the money when, when they hit a downturn. And so I think there's just a lot more control. Now, I would say entrepreneurship in the early days is more risky because it is super uncertain, right? Dave in 2010, as an entrepreneur, much riskier, right? But now you have the experience, you have a business that's, that's generating revenue. And I bring up that story about, you know, your dad, or your, really it's your childhood, because I want people listening to realize I was willing to take some risk, but it was calculated risk. I knew I could go back and start consulting or get a job if things tanked. You know, even though it was 2008, 2009, I knew that I had clients, I had people who wanted to pay me to write code. So the risk to me was that I had to go back and get a day job in essence. And I was so not liking it. You know, I was so burned out on all that stuff, just working for other people, that I was willing to take the risk. But you, you listened to your own psychology, right? And you listened to your own experience and you, it took you longer to get there, but that's okay too, right? That's, we bootstrap so we can be in control of these decisions. Yeah. And it really did take me, like you said, you kept badgering me all the time. Psychologically, it wasn't until like things got so bad at my freelancing that I finally was able to take a look and say, can I actually do this now? Like prior to that, I, you know, I was doing some dumb things. Like I wasn't monitoring my PL as closely as I should have with recapture. Like I was doing it once or twice a year. That's bad. Don't ever do that. If you have a business, please for the love of God, get your books in order every month. Have that showing up on your email or something. Do them yourself. Hire somebody else to do it. I don't care. So important that you know that information all the time. I didn't, and I was making bad decisions because of it. But as a result of the anxiety attack, I basically suffered at my freelance client because things got so bad. I had to like put the P&L together under duress to find out, can I get out of here? Because I need an exit plan right now. <laughs> and that's what that's what ultimately motivated it. So it took me longer to get there. Similar path, maybe a bit longer. Yeah. This week's sponsor is Kelsis. Kelsis provides engineering teams for startup success and they stick with their clients for the long term. Kelsis has worked with clients through nine acquisitions and every time their work has passed due diligence and security audits by big audit firms and public companies. Working with Kelsis starts with a half-hour walkthrough call where you tell them about your startup, and after that, they usually begin a three-week fixed-bid discovery project. Go to kelsis.com slash startup to schedule your walkthrough call. That's K-E-L-S-U-S dot com slash startup. And so you've been on your own, in essence, for a year, and I'd love to hear from you what's been surprising about that and what hasn't been, or if, you know, if there have been things that aren't, are not surprising. I would say the most surprising thing to me is how long it took me to kind of unlearn all of the ingrained habits that I had from working from somebody else about the, the feeling of, oh my God, it's, it's eight o'clock. I need to be sitting at my desk. Oh my God, it's five o'clock. I should get the hell out of here. During that day, like, oh, I, I have to be here for all of these things. None of that goes is true anymore. Like for me to 
suddenly be able to say, oh, you know, my wife, Tracy, and I now take Friday mornings off and we spend time together. It took me probably about four months to feel okay about that. Like it stressed me out when she would ask me that. And then we sat down and had a conversation and I'm like, why am I stressed about this? And she's like, I don't know. Why are you stressed about this? And then I kind of unpacked it. Like I'm treating this in the same way I was treating my freelance client. Like I own my time. I own my flexibility here. And if I'm not taking advantage of it, why did I do this? And you know, that was kind of a, it was an eye-opening moment for me, a very surprising thing to say, my schedule is my own. If I want to work till four, great. If I want to start at 10, great. If I want to work at seven o'clock at night, great. As long as it works for the family, as long as it works for me, as long as we're getting stuff done and we're moving the business forward, like it's all okay. Getting to that okay took me longer than I thought. And there might be a little PTSD from my my freelance client where it, it turned really toxic there in the last 12 months. Yeah, I mean, it just, it was, a, it was kind of an unlearning experience and uh, letting that tension go and feeling okay with where I was suddenly at. That was the most surprising part. I felt that 100%. That might be my most surprising as well. So I'm glad you said it. I remember that I was so hung up because I was billing hourly, right? When you're a contractor consultant, I would bill hourly. So if I wasn't working, I wasn't getting paid. Didn't have vacation days, didn't have sick days, but it was fine because I didn't take a lot of vacation and didn't get sick very often. So in that, you can make a lot of money. But I got it so in my head that one hour equals money that once I didn't have that, I remember telling Sherry, well, we're taking a week vacation. So I need to figure out how to work 40 hours like either the week before, in addition to the normal week, I need to work an additional 40 hours either the week before or the week after. And she was like, why? And I was like, well, because that's what you do. Because you work 40 hours every week. And she's like, no, not anymore. And I, but I couldn't, I couldn't do it. It took, me, it took me several months to do what you did, which was to kind of unwind it. It probably took me a couple of years to not still feel guilty when I did it. When I would wake up, get the kids to whatever daycare, preschool, and then I would go to Starbucks or I would go to Barnes and Noble and I would look through books and I'd drink some coffee at the cafe and I would just not work, even though, of course, I'm like looking at business books and I'm thinking about marketing, right? So, I mean, I, I pretty much am working all the time, but I wasn't actually sitting there pounding the keyboard and I would have this amazing sense of guilt that I was somehow, that I was letting the family down, right? Or that I wasn't growing the business as quickly as I should be. And it was, it's not a good thing. It's, I talk about relentless execution, which we might have time to touch on a little later. And I think that's such a strength, but that's the dark side of it. That's the other side of that coin is the need to relentlessly execute and the inability to unwind and chill the f*** out and enjoy your life instead of constantly feeling this guilt and pressure to sit in front of your computer. That is super unhealthy. And I, you know, I, I find myself still doing that today. Here we are 13 months in and there are days that I'm like, it's, been a terrible afternoon. I'm shit productivity and I still feel somewhat compelled to keep going. But now I will actually realize that I'm at that point where the productivity is not where it should be. And I'm like, all right, I'm done. I'm just going to go do something else. And, you know, if I still feel like I have to do something, I will try to like do family productive stuff. So maybe it'll be like catch up on the finances to do the bills or go do some chores around the house or something. So I, I'm, I don't feel like I've wasted the time, but at the same time, I'm not sitting here 
wasting time in front of the keyboard, not doing anything that should move the business forward. Now I realize that there are windows of productivity and that, that those are what I need to protect and enjoy and take advantage of. And when it goes, and it always goes, it never stays, your flow state is not infinite, then it's okay. Let it go. Plan for that somehow. That's, yeah, that's a hard part. I still, I'm still struggling with that today. I think a big surprise for me, separate from that one that we, we just talked about, was that I felt an immense sense of relief and happiness to be finally be working truly for myself, not you know having clients, not having a boss, and that that stayed with me. But what started creeping in was it's the arrival fallacy. It's that I became gradually unhappy over the next six to 12 months because I think as humans, that's what we do. We figure out how to be unhappy with whatever mountain we climb. We like, oh, there's another one over there that's higher. And so for me, it was a boredom of, I have all these autopilot, basically work. You know, I didn't have the four-hour work week. I had about the 10, 12-hour work week and I was making a full-time living, 100, 150K at the time. But I got super bored is this it for me? Like, I'm going to do this for 20 years? Because this is not, I'm, I'm more ambitious than this is what I started realizing, right? So I was surprised. And I stopped being surprised if this happened to me like several times, right? When I left full-time employment to become a consultant, freelancer, when I started working from home, each of these things are things I've, I've always wanted to do these. And I did them and I was happy with them for a few months until I wasn't. And this was another step. And this was one of the later ones where I was still surprised by it. Because then the next step after that of like, oh, I want a recurring revenue SaaS app that does 30 grand a month, then I'll be happy. I remember being, you know, which is what Hittail became, right? And I remember being like, dude, you're going to be happy for about six months. And so at least I learned from it, right, as I got older. But at that time, it was still surprising to me that it didn't just solve all my problems, make my worries go away and make me happy for the rest of my life. Yeah. Those things that you just talked about there, I'm constantly haunted by Dan Pink's drive. Autonomy, mastery, and purpose, right? I've never gotten to a point where I'm like, okay, I'm happy and none of those three things are present. And the problem is, is that when you get happy with those three things, you will eventually also get bored because you are no longer doing those three things. Your purpose will change or it wanes over time or you've achieved mastery. So now what? And you may have autonomy already. Great. But when you aren't changing that mastery and, and finding something new to learn or your purpose just isn't there anymore, you've automated the crap out of it. And what's your purpose? Like those things make me bored too. And I worry about that a lot. In fact, with all the, the frothiness that's going on in the M&A market and PE firms just getting stupid with throwing money around left and right, buying companies up willy nilly, you know, I've entertained, could I sell recapture? Oh yes, I could do that. But what would I do then? I know that that's an important question. And if I don't answer that question before I do the other question, then I'm going to be in huge, huge trouble because the times that I have sold things, it's been when I had something else to jump to. Like, oh, I'm selling the plugins, but I've got recapture to focus on. Oh, I've sold these other tiny businesses. Well, but I've got this, the plugins to focus on or something like that. I don't have something else. And so that lack of purpose says, then I'm not done with this yet. So until I find another purpose, then I can say, all right, maybe I'm done with this. But it's the same set of motivations. And I recognize that in, in everybody, when they don't have that purpose and they get bored, they're not happy. And it doesn't matter what level of success you achieve. You, can, you could have tens of millions of dollars and lack purpose and you're going to be miserable. 
that's where retirement is hard for a lot of people, right? And I yeah. think our generation yeah. and younger is probably now that we have the internet and we have podcasts and YouTube channels and social media, the ability to kind of make a living in these ways. I don't know if I will ever retire. Like, I don't know that I will. Like my dad stopped working one day because he had to go into an office and manage construction projects. And you don't want to do that when you're 75. I don't know that I'll be still doing a podcast and YouTube channel when I'm 75, but will I still be thinking and writing books and advising startups? I think so. Like, I don't know why I would stop doing that as long as I was able to, you know, physically and, and mentally. It's just different. It's different these days. One thing I want to call out, you said, you know, what would I do if I sold? And I, I, you hear that from like Basecamp would say, David and, and Jason Freed would say, what would I do if I sold? For them, I struggle with it a bit more. I find bootstrappers repeating that and mimicking it and saying like, what would I do if I sold? And I think if you can sell for 10, 20, 30 million or enough money to where you never have to work again is probably how I should phrase it. I actually think that you'll find something to do because you have infinite time and there's no pressure. So if you, Dave, could sell Recapture, you know, I know that it's not at that point yet, but if you could sell it for 20 million and you know that you're set for life, then I would say the what would I do next is whatever the hell you want and you'll figure it out. You can be a philanthropist. Maybe you write a book. Maybe you start another startup. Maybe you buy a startup. Maybe you explore hobbies because you literally have no time clock. You can not work on anything that you don't want to for the rest of your life. That is different than I'm going to sell my start, my bootstrap startup for a million dollars, right? Which in the U.S. is just... That's not life-changing money anymore. No, it I isn't. Mean, it, it can be, it can change your life, yeah. but it's not an infinite change. Like 20, 30 million? Yes. You're set. You're right. So that's yeah. where I would say like, listener, if, if you could sell for a million or two and you don't know what you do next, fine. Keep growing that business. It's great. And, and get it to that point if, if that's your desire to, to where you can sell for 20 or 30 million. But I do struggle sometimes with entrepreneurs who have changed their life, who have built an incredible business. And they're just like, well, what would I do next? And but, but also they don't like their job. Like if you love your company and you're working on it, then fine, keep doing it. I have nothing against that. But it's the kind of this fear mindset of like, I'm, I'm not creative enough to be able to replace what I do with this day job that I'm you know tethered to it. I want to mix it up a little bit, Dave, and go on to this second topic we were going to talk about, which is balancing a side project with a day job. I get this question fairly frequently. And someone asked me at an in-person event a few weeks ago, it sparked it again in my mind of really, how do you, how do you work a day job? And I include full-time, I include contracting, freelancing, whatever you want to call it. How do you balance that with quote unquote, a side project that you want to become? Your goal is for it to be, become your full-time income, right? But you and I both have stories of, of how we've done this. And I, I want to just toss it to you first and then, and then all the way in. Like, what, what was your process as you were doing? You had three products at the time and you were like traveling. You, you had a client that you were traveling to. So you'd hop on an airplane one week a month or something. I mean, you had a lot and a family, right? Wife and kids. Yeah. Well, I could tell you how to do it badly in some cases here, <laughs> but uh, I mean, it, it, it's a juggling act. And I'll tell you right now, you can easily deceive yourself into thinking, I can totally do this and master all parts of that. And the reality of it is you will not. Like if you're trying to do three different things, let's say you're trying to do the family, you're trying to do the side hustle, and you're trying to do the you know contracting job or the full-time job or something like that. I guarantee you at least one of those will suffer and suffer badly. And for most of us, especially men, 
it's not going to be the full-time job because that's the one you're going to make sure that one still brings in the paycheck. So that means either the family or the side project are going to suffer. And I've seen people that have done both of those. And I have done both of those as well. And neglecting your family, neglecting your relationship with your partner, your SO, that is not sustainable. That will resolve itself in one of two ways. Either you're going to say, no, we're not doing this anymore, or something more serious is going to happen akin to a divorce or other kinds of conflict in there. So that one is going to be really rough. So what ends up happening? Well, your side project ultimately ends up suffering. And if you are lucky enough to get enough revenue, which I was for the plugins, then you can start to hire people to deal with some of those things and take some of that stuff off your plate. But what that ultimately means is that you're still not spending a ton of time on those and your focus is on the other two. And so at best you can keep it to maybe sustenance mode, but you're never going to be into like hyper growth, hyper building, hyper expansion, hyper improvement mode. There's a limit to your time. So, you know, there's, there's strategies you can do. You could say, all right, for this period of time, you know, if you're a contractor, you can say, I'm not going to contract and I'm going to work on the side project. And so that way you've got two areas of focus. That's great. That's one way to manage it. But then you have to make sure you've got a, a buffer built up and that your family's on board with that. And, you know, you can handle your finances, et cetera. Then there's another one of saying, all right, well, the full-time job is just not that demanding. I know several people that have had very undemanding full-time jobs. They get their work done in, you know, 15 hours in a 40-hour week, and they got these 25 hours just sitting around. They can do their side project during that time. I had that for a while, so that was part of what helped me build that up. But ultimately, that is not going to last forever, not going to be sustainable. Something will change at some point, and that won't work. But... Your focus is key to growing any business. And since I have like tossed aside full-time consulting, I have been able to focus on so many more things and drive recapture forward and try a bunch of stuff, even stuff that didn't work more quickly, more easily now that it's my full-time thing. And I can do it more sustainably because ultimately, if you're trying to put your focus on all three of those things, you will hit burnout. It is not a question of if, it is always a question of when. <laughs> so that's, there's, there's my tidbits of advice on that, having tried that for close to a decade. So, Man, you paint a dark picture. <laughs> this is really, we, can, we need something upbeat. <laughs> Don't do it, man. <laughs> no, but it's true. It's true. And, and I get questions on this podcast of people writing in and being like, I, you know, I just can't swing it. I'm too tired. And it's like, then you shouldn't do it. Or you should take an alternate path to where maybe you work. You're number two at a startup or you work for a startup or save up enough money. I've had some friends. I couldn't do this, but with our expenses and having, you know, the, the family and Sherry was in grad school. But I had a friend who saved 18 months of living expenses in the bank in cash and then like quit the job and build something. And that also scares me, of course, because SaaS can take a long time, right, to find product market fit. 18 is not enough these days. No, yeah, that's tough. I know, it, it doesn't feel that way. But all that said, it is tough. And I, I think people need to hear that, right? And I think, but there are alternatives, right? Some folks, they self-fund through, as you said, like consulting on the side or consulting, I should say consulting during the day Working at night, that's what I did. I always had either a day job or some type of nine to five consulting five days a week. And then it was all 
nights and weekends. And part of it, we didn't have kids. And then when we had kids, it was like, well, then we put the kid to bed and then I would work. And I, I don't do well on little sleep, but I just forced myself to for a while, you know, where the kid would go to bed at seven and then I'd go seven to midnight and then get up and, you know, do that. So I got five hours a day and it was tough and it was tough on the marriage. But, you know, to your point, like, you're not going to be great at all three of these things at all at once, right? There's family and there's your side project and you're going to neglect one of them. And I remember really grinding on it for a while. And then I remember there was a moment where my contract said, you know what? We have you 40 hours. We're running into some financial issues. Could we drop you to 20 hours? And I was like, yes, this is the best idea ever. And so in retrospect, I wished I had thought to propose to them, like, could I go to 32? Because I had done that with a day job where I'd actually dropped down to like 32 hours, like 80% time at a full-time job before I left a few months later to freelance and consult. But that was really nice because then it truly was less of a grind. It wasn't 60-hour weeks anymore, right? It dropped it down to about you know 50. It was like 20 consulting, 30 doing the other thing. And a lot of it was, was during the day. So I just remember the huge weight off my shoulders, like I said earlier. When I did finally quit that, I felt like I had so much time, infinite time. I was like, let me get this straight. All that crap I've been doing from like 7 p.m. to midnight most nights, I get to do during the day now. And then I have my evenings and that was actually a reset. That was another, another surprising one is I was like, okay, now I need to figure out how to do stuff in the evenings and not think about work, you know, to, to back to our original point of letting it turn off. It's like, how do I, I guess, I guess we do have friends, huh? Maybe we should hang out with them sometime. You know? <laughs> right. I mean, ultimately, how many times have you said this on the pod over the years? It's a marathon, not a sprint. And if you try to sprint, you can try to sprint for short distances, but it's not sustainable. And you must rest after each sprint, literally and figuratively, both. You have to have that time to rest and recoup and find that sustainable strategy. Working, If you have the burn rate, you can work part-time in consulting and do your side thing. Like, great, do that. Like, that is more sustainable. If you are single and don't have the the demands of the family that you would if you had kids and a and a so great then that's a, a an excellent time that you can build the startup but still you have to take care of yourself you will you will burn out if you just like try to burn the candle at both ends 40 at the job 20 at the the side hustle and just do that 7 days a week and you think oh the weekends hey man i can totally do this you know 16 hours on the weekends no no you can't not indefinitely Sure, you can for a while. It won't feel great. And when you hit the wall, you're going to hit it hard. Like you said, I don't want to paint an unrealistic picture of this because you and I have both tried various strategies on this with varying degrees of success. And on the other end, we both realize focus wins and you have to find a way to get that and protect that and your health. It, you know, those two things, if you don't have those, you're not going to have a business that works. This is one of the reasons that I started acquiring products early on in 2006 was my first. And I realized, oh, this is a way that I don't have to do nearly as much of that upfront grind with no return of just months and months and months of coding at night to finally launch and then realize, oh my God, now I'm at the starting line. Now I got to figure out product market fit and all that other stuff. Whereas I could buy a product and my original one was, it wasn't SaaS, right? It was 2006. So that wasn't really a thing. And 
paid. I had earned the free. I was freelancing on the side, working a day job, and I put all the freelancing money into an account, and I had like twelve, fifteen grand, and I spent most of that on .NET invoice. Right, I dropped eleven thousand dollar check. It was very scary, and I actually kind of got screwed in a way. Like the revenue wasn't, you know, was, we did, I didn't know what I was doing. It was a freaking wild west. It was sixteen years ago, and it might even have been seventeen, whatever. But and the revenue wasn't what they said it was, but that let me skip 12 months of building that thing. It probably would have taken me 12 months of nights and weekends to do it. And and it had it already had a marketing set up. It had a little bit of SEO. They were doing a little bit of AdWords. So it had just a skeleton of things. And I think that's another path. A lot Most entrepreneurs don't want to do that because they want to build their own thing. A lot of them are developers and they want it to be their code. And I get it. But one way to avoid some of the pain that we're talking about is to acquire things. And that's what you had done, right? You acquired, I think, all your stuff, right? Recapture and the WordPress plugins. And you you'd acquired stuff before that as well. All my successful stuff was acquired. The things that I tried to build from scratch, like support vine, yeah. Didn't, didn't turn out. <laughs> it happens. Well, I mean, it's just, and I'm not saying you can't do that. Like, right. I just, I, I screwed up on so many levels with that one, not figuring out what the customers wanted, not trying to get people on board in advance. Like I, I made so many of those, like the last episode, 10 classic SaaS mistakes, right? Your number one was make sure people want the product. I didn't make sure that they wanted the product. I just started building it based on some faulty assumptions and it blew up in my face $50,000 later. Like dumb things like that will kill you every time, but you absolutely, you know, you get a level up advantage. If you can find something that has product market fit that you think you can grow, that you can see the flaws in, and acquire it for a reasonable price that already has some revenue, some traction, and build on that. Like, that's still, to me, a massive advantage today. Indeed it is, sir. If folks want to keep up with you, you are at Dave Rodenbaugh on Twitter, and we will spell that out in the uh, show notes of this episode. And, of course, recapture.io, if folks want to see what you're up to, and your co-host of the Rogue Startups podcast with Craig Hewitt. Thanks for joining me, Dave. Thank you for having me, Rob. Always a pleasure. Thanks for joining me this week. If we're not connected on Twitter, hit me up at Rob Walling and of course at Startups Pod if you want to see our fun 90-second video clip that we kick out each week. I hope to connect with you there. Thanks so much for listening every week. Signing off from episode 612. Talk to you next week.